So if you're claiming, which is by the way, based on your religious interpretation, this is your promised land and the Jews had a very strong connection to it. By the way, the Jews have a very, every bit of a strong connection to Egypt, if not even stronger. Does that make it right for them to take over Egypt? Probably not. Definitely not. Sorry, what do you mean probably? But <laughs> if that's, <laughs> no, uh, so if that's your claim and, and, and you came back two to 3,000 years after, then why can't a Palestinian go back 73 years after? Hi, this is the Ignoramus's Guide to Surviving Humanity. I'm Eliana Chan, and this is my co-host, Anne Montfan. And we have a very special guest, the behavioral political economist, Ahmed Sharan. Um, he was on a previous episode with us uh, to explain the deficit myth. And today he's here um, to, to explain, to make us understand the Palestinian-Israel situation. I almost said conflict and then realized that that would immediately make me too ignorant. So I stopped myself and said situation. <laughs> and if you, if you want to uh, listen or watch the other episode, then you can go to our YouTube page. You can go to Spotify or Apple Music. Or Thank Amazon Music. Guys. Or Amazon um, Music. Or Amazon Music. Or, and if you want to help us grow, then you can go to our Patreon and become a patron. So that would be really exciting. But um, so today, so we watched um, Gaza Fights for Freedom, the Abby Martin documentary, to sort of get us into a space where we could, like, hopefully ask informed questions about this. And also, you know, get your thoughts about the film and the situation in Israel and um Palestine. So I guess the first question would really be, um, what did you think of the film? Well, Should we? Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for having me. I watched the film and I really liked it. I think it was uh, a very accurate depiction of what is going on on the ground in the Gaza Strip. And um, I think it, it sent a very important message to uh, the audience groups, wherever they're located, because those are not things that are usually covered in mainstream media outlets. So I think it was extremely important to show a peaceful demonstration being met with heavy, heavily militarized, um, you know, uh, machines and, you know, to expose all the atrocities and the wrongdoing, the wrongdoings that are being committed against the Palestinians um, almost on a daily basis in the occupied uh, Gaza Strip and, and the West Bank. So, uh, yeah, I think um, Abby did a great job. I mean, I, I personally watch her, watch her other works, too. She's, she's a great journalist and uh, is very much familiar with uh, the Palestine-Israel conflict. So we need more, um, more of the well-informed um, journalists, intellectuals to sort of um, voice their opinions and, 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 make their, and, and make their stories more easily heard and um, acknowledged. Yeah, that's one of the really important things that you're um, saying here about that um, documentary, because I often hear this, um, this sort of sentiment about Palestine, where people say, 
oh, why don't they, you know, instead of Hamas throwing rockets over to Israel, you know, why don't they just peacefully protest? Why isn't there a Palestinian Gandhi? That's something that I've heard before. And this just really, in the documentary, she shows how the, um, the Great March of Return, which was a peaceful protest at the border, was met with systematic um, killings of people just marching there unarmed, sometimes maybe holding a flag, and they were actually shot by snipers. And so people, journalists on the ground have, have described that systematic killing and how slow it was and how targeted it was um, against these peaceful protesters. As uh, like one of the journalists said, it was the, like the most chilling thing he'd seen, like worse than covering wars in Syria or Libya, something so systematic and slow and just like you know, kill the killing of these people. And it was completely peaceful. Absolutely, because it just goes to prove that there is a confrontation between one of the world's strongest armies, you know, supported by the world's superpower against a defenseless group of innocent civilians who are simply fighting to uh, get their basic human rights. And, um, and this has always been the Israeli strategies to continue to alienate and, uh, um, you know, fight with machines, the, the, the mere Palestinian presence. And, and um, you know, they, you know there's, there's been talks about, you know, why can't the Palestinians, you know, negotiate peace, but negotiate yeah. peace with whom? Your occupier? Since yeah. when? You get, like your occupier, that's their, that's, their, that's their designation, right? Your occupier is meant to occupy you. He's not he or she or whatever. You, it or, yeah, you cannot yeah. negotiate if you have absolutely no power. If you're the completely powerless person in that scenario, how do you negotiate with someone who has like all the power? Like, I think that's, but let's like back up a little because I think we're getting into the weeds with this documentary that is very emotionally affecting. And I really feel like everyone should watch that because it's just a kind of a good introduction and yet very accurate to what's actually happening on the ground. But it's only, it was only, it was 2018. So actually, things have probably gotten a lot worse now because one of the things she said in that documentary was that by 2020, there won't be enough water to make that area livable in Gaza. So, you know, but it's a very like a worthy documentary to watch, I, I think. So, but let's back it up. Um, so let me throw it back, throw it to Anne. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, because, so, Anne, like, let's start us off with something, an ignoramus question about the Israel-Palestine. Oh, goodness. Well, I didn't really know anything that was happening. I was that ignorant American who's like, what? Oh, they're, they're bombs? Like, okay, somebody's pissed off at somebody else. Um, and really, just when we were meeting, Ahmed, um, and you said that you didn't have a birth certificate, right? From Palestine that you, you identify as Palestinian. Did I get this wrong? I feel no. like I got this wrong. I was not born <laughs> in Palestine. You're right. Oh, okay. Um, and I was like, that's, that's interesting. And then watching John Oliver, it's like, this is, uh, Israel's just being a dick. They have all of this power, etc. Like somebody like, it's too much to go into the history. And I realized I didn't know 
anything that was going on. And so <laughs> I, watching this documentary was all new things to me. Um, and I also watched Born in Gaza, which I kind of have fused them in my mind. So that's honestly why I was a little silent on the, on, on the last section, uh, because I don't <laughs> remember which is which, but it's horrifying just, you know, to see they have nowhere to go. They're just, there's no supplies. There's, I guess, okay. I'm gonna actually take what Ileana wanted me to do and ask the ignorant question. <laughs> so, so why are all of these people in Gaza? That's a very big question. But well, many of those there. people, many of those people are descendants of families who are actually not from Gaza. In 1948, when, when the state of Israel was created on historical Palestine, it was created on almost 78% of the land that was considered historical Palestine under the British mandate. And so Palestinians became refugees in 1948. A big chunk of Palestinians went to the Gaza Strip. Many others went to the West Bank and other neighboring Arab countries. So, I mean, of course, you have the original inhabitants of Gaza, but in addition, you have people who have you know, fled uh, wars and um, uh, conflicts from 1948 and now became Gazan residents by, you know, by, you know, by virtue of 73 years of um, residence, basically. So it's considered one of the most densely populated uh, regions in the world. You have a very small strip and close to 2 million inhabitants, you know, living conditions are horrendous. And uh, Gaza, let's the, 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 an important fact here, we're talking about a strip that has been um, under siege, under Israeli siege for the past 15 years. So the Gazans don't even control their, uh, their ports. They don't control their, you know, their borders. They, um, Israel counts the calories that go into the Gaza Strip. It's, it's, it's that devastating. It's even, you know, to, 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 on, on many different levels, you know, the situation is even a lot more devastating than um, the situation in the West Bank, which is the other part of the Palestinian occupied territories. So when we're talking occupied Palestine, we're referring to the Gaza Strip and the West Bank that is next, uh, next to Jordan. You know. So, but there is no movement um, because Gaza is considered, uh, I've heard this term when referring to Gaza as like an open air prison. And yeah. she kind of talks about it in the document, she does talk about it in the documentary that there's no way out. Like you can't even exit through the sea. So what about the West Bank? So like Gaza, there's no movement between the West Bank and Gaza either. Israel controls the movement. Entirely. So yeah, so there's no way because, that- Because there is, no, there is no independent Palestinian state. There is no Palestine from an official perspective does not really exist. Unfortunately, it's still under the, under uh, this brutal military Israeli occupation. But there's clearly different um, a different strategy for occupying Gaza because you know that's where the Hamas militants are based, and so Israel has has different strategies and different ways of controlling two regions. You know, there's the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank that coordinates with the state of Israel on matters related to governing and managing that area. But then 
there is not there isn't that connection um, with the Gaza Strip, and so Israel sort of, you know, controlled um, the, um, the, uh, the 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 strip entirely by imposing heavy sanctions. You know, they're they're sanctioned. They're they don't have access to their full access to their waters, to their airspace, to their you know just mere borders. The Egyptian border is close too. They can't. There is no free movement. It's definitely a prison. I mean, I agree with that. And uh, it's a humanitarian crisis too. And Israel should be uh, held accountable. And you know, for for all these you know crimes and atrocities committed against humans, you know, regardless of religion, um, ethnicity, or whatnot, you know, you have an Israeli force, which is the recognized force in that, in, in you know, in historical Palestine. So we, this, this message has to be sent to them and to the international communities or governments that support this recognized um, uh, state of Israel, right? Because when we're talking about Israel and Palestine, we can't just hold two parties equally accountable when power dynamics are clearly working in favor of one party and at the expense of a defenseless population. As Ilhan Omar pointed it out in, in Congress, this is not a conflict between two states. It's not. There is no Palestinian state. So it is a conflict between a recognized, fully established military power that has been historically backed up and supported by international Zionism and heteropatriarchal post-colonial capitalism and a bunch of defenseless Palestinians who had been residing for hundreds of years in their historical ancestral homeland. The conflict is between a group of people and a state that I consider to be a post-colonial Western outlet. So let's like break down what that means. When you say the, when you say the, the powers, the, um, I can't even I can't even repeat what you just said. <laughs> but, but essentially, like, what are the imperialist powers that we're talking you're talking about? Like, who? Which countries are they? Like, what countries are involved in the creation? Well, of historically, Israel? historically, it was European countries: the United Kingdom, Germany, and, and of course the United States. But then the emphasis, you know, was more um, with the U.S. as opposed to Europe. But I mean, historically speaking, let's just Let's just say it. The Jewish communities were um, historically present all across Europe, and they were a prosperous community. They were ostracized and discriminated against heavily by um, um, historical ancient Europe. You know, what I, mean? I would I would I would call it racist Christian Europe because that's what it was. And those were, you know, a, a minority, a, a visible minority group. I'm talking about the Jewish communities, and they were ostracized for being different, you know, just for being Jewish, they were very prosperous, very commercially advanced, and um, they, uh, you know, they were doing well in different fields, and they had special relationships with the emperors of ancient Europe at the time, so they were favored for their skills, and so that sort of, from, from a historical perspective, created a great deal of, you know, tensions between the, the Christian Europeans and them, because the Christian Europeans felt like they were not as important. So I, I feel, and that's my personal interpretation of like history, it created a, some um, jealousy and, and intentions between the two groups. And obviously in the second world war, uh, you know, you 
you're aware of the Holocaust and the atrocities that were committed against um, the Jewish communities uh, in historical Europe, but had, you know, the Palestinians were not involved whatsoever. I mean, Palestine is in the Middle East, it's not a European country. And, um, you know, so there were the escalation of political events led to the creation of a state that would work to serve uh, bigger uh, political interests of Western powers, but would also be a place that would house the Jewish communities wherever they're located. So there you go, international Zionism as a political ideology was created in the late, um, was created and supported heavily in the late uh, 19th century. And um, which by the way, was created by mainly uh, um, atheist Jews atheist Jews. So for, for people who say like for people who mix between Judaism and Zionism, those are completely separate terms. You know, Zionism and Judaism are completely separate and independent of one another. So and the early creators is yeah, the early Zionists who, you know, were responsible for the creation of the state of Israel and, you know, all that um, political mess that, you know, uh, ended up happening in historical Palestine were atheists who had a, a, a strong, you know, who had a vision, a political uh, vision um, uh, in, in that region. And so they were, they were politically motivated. Obviously, there were the Christian Zionists too, but it's, uh, it's independent of, you know, genuine, you know, Judaism or, you know, um, um, religion, basically. So, so if uh, they're atheists, why did they choose that region? Well, I mean, there were atheists, there were smart, there were smart, um, controlling atheists, powerful, you know. Um, so they understood that that would be easily invasive um, yeah, exactly. to a religious. Well, I mean, religion has always been used throughout history. Religion has always been used to control the masses and to serve, unfortunately, to serve bigger political agendas that are independent of, I mean, most world leaders are not genuinely religious. That's, you know, this is, I mean, I don't know if you may agree or disagree, but uh, genuine religion is a, you know, is a, is a mere connection, a special sacred connection between man and their creator. And it should not leave the confines of a bedroom, in my opinion, that's genuine religion. And it could be Ju Judaism, it could be Christianity, Islam, whatever. But once, you know, you um, engage uh, religion in political discourse, oh, then we're, then we're having problems. And that's exactly what we have in, uh, you know, Palestine versus Israel, because you have a state that wants to establish itself and maintain itself as a pure Jewish identity state that is made for only Jews. And this is, this is again mixing mixing religion with um, with politics at a time, you know. Progressives around the world are trying to get rid of you know any sort of you know politicized religious intervention. You know, societies are now trying to liberate themselves, so we're not we're moving forward, we're not moving backwards. But unfortunately, the state of Israel is becoming more increasingly divisive and and, and religious in the sense that it wants to um, uh, you know. Uh, wants world recognition, you know, as a, as a Jewish state just for the Jews based on biblical beliefs. I mean, I think, yeah, there are two ignorant questions that come up for that. Like one, the idea that Israel was uninhabited when it was formed, right? That's some, I think some people were sort of fed that. 
idea. And therefore, that's why when the Jewish people moved in there, it's like their own land because it was really no one else's but theirs. Oh my God. I mean, I, I thank you for raising that point because it's a very important point. For me, I consider Palestine a national identity that is a mere reflection of cultural aspirations, lifestyle, and uh, just achievements in general, you know, human achievements and, you know, in art, um, uh, medicine, uh, different intellectual fields. Palestine was very well established. You know, Palestinian society was established well before the creation of the state of Israel. And Palestine was actually one of the unique areas of the Middle East in the sense that in a relatively small area of land, you had several cities, towns, villages, and areas that were very much unique. You had different lifestyles, different people, different, you know, colloquial uh, Palestinian Arabic is very much different depending on where you're from and what city your parents are from and where you grew up. And so there was there was a thriving culture that was extremely prosperous in comparison. Now we're talking about historical Palestine. So we're you know, going back to the 20s, 30s and 40s and even before it was very much uh, you know, uh, distinct and, you know, and, and, and very culturally rich. So for, for someone to assume that this was a land that was empty, that is like flat out, I mean, I'm, I don't know, it's not even, it's not even ignorance, just, funny ignorant. I don't know what it, what it <laughs> but it's quite a common idea isn't it like would you say you've heard that too Anne no you haven't I haven't heard that <laughs> I think I, I heard it in a Seth Rogen interview he said that when he was growing up that's what he was told I mean he he's yeah. Jewish so he was kind of told you know we had a promised land and we went there because it was ours. A Never mind that there was people, people there. A land yeah. without a people for a people without, without established a people. Yeah, it was just like somehow very convenient. <laughs> this this um, land. Um, so, okay, and that brings me to the other. Do you have an ignorant question, um, Anne, or or just a question? Doesn't have to be ignorant because I have one as well. Oh, go for yours. Well, it, it brings me to the other um, language that is like finally being used right now. Um, I think in the past few months, there's been the Human Rights Watch, um, which, you know, is a very neoliberal organization. It's something that I tend to think of as a very interventionist, um, imperialist um, human rights <laughs> organization and suspect, but they actually surprisingly came out with the statement that um, Israel is apartheid. I think they did. And then the other one was the Israeli um, human rights organization in Israel called... Um, Salem? Yes, exactly. They also came out and said apartheid, which is like the first times, I guess, that people are using that sort of language, um, weirdly. But... Why? So what is the case for it being apartheid versus because some people are still like, don't use that incendiary language. But what is the case for it actually being apartheid in Israel? Oh, oh, there's every bit of a case. You know, it's 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 clearly evident the, you know, the Palestinians are treated as I wouldn't say as fifth class citizens. You know, they're you know, they're um, the. Um, the indigenous people of that land, and there's clear-cut Israeli divisions, you know, there. And so, first of all, the Palestinians in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, they don't have voting rights. 
So they don't but have- do Palestinians in other areas of Israel have voting rights? Yeah, they do, but they're heavily discriminated against from within Israel. So we're talking about the Palestinian citizens of Israel who are basically remnants of the 1948 Nakba or the Palestinian catastrophe, the, the, you know, of, of the Palestinian families that managed to stay there. And they were, you know, um, there were not many then, but now with time, they're about 20 to 21% of the population of the state of Israel. So they're, they're considered Palestinian citizens of Israel. They have citizenship, they do have voting rights and they uh, do um, um, participate in the Israeli Knesset, but they're an extremely ostracized, um, discriminated against, um, minority group from within Israeli society. I mean, the most recent, the most recent clashes between uh, Israeli police officers and members of that community uh, last month is, you know, is goes to prove my point. So um, yeah, so there, and, uh, you know, there's, I think it was recently that um, Arabic, Arabic in the state of Israel was, was demoted as a de facto language of the state. So there's, you know, there's more and more policies that, um, you know, put in place to discriminate against those people, to alienate the Palestinian presence. And, and by the way, they're, they're not referred to as Palestinian citizens of Israel or Palestinian Israeli, which is the accurate definition. They're referred to as Arab Israelis, as though, and you know, it's, and this, this, this mere definition or label trub troubles me so much because it's very inaccurate. You know, like they, they you know, it's, it, it keep, people keep saying this, you hear it all the time, different, you know, uh, media outlets and channels, not all by the way, but you know, Arabs versus the Jews. And that's like one misconception as though the two terms are mutually exclusive as though, you know, a Yemeni who was residing in Yemen and then migrated to Palestine became an Israeli is not an Arab Israeli just because they're Jewish. So there are so many Jews living in different parts of the Arab world who migrated to the state of Israel. They're Arab Jews, right? So it just, it, so it's, it's, it's only normal to refer to them as Arab Jews because, you know, before they were Arab and now they're Israeli, but no, they're not, they're Jewish. So they're Israeli, but Arab Israelis, are basically when they when they when they communicate that in the media, they're referring to Palestinians, but they just don't want to mention the word Palestinian because Israeli policies have historically been aimed at alienating the Palestinian presence, fighting culture, fighting the people, their aspirations, their hope, their accomplishments, you know, and it's just part of a bigger plan. We need to make it clear for our audience groups that, you know, this Arab versus Jews is not an accurate comparison. It is not a conflict between Arabs and Jews. Arabs and Jews can be one. A Moroccan, a Moroccan Jew, an Algerian Jew, a Tunisian Jew, an Iraqi Jew, an Egyptian Jew. There are Palestinian Jews too. I mean, Jewish people were all over the entire Middle Eastern region and in, 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 in North Africa. And they were, you know, they were well received when, when compared to their, you know, um, history of misery um, um, alienation and, um, you know, just, uh, you know, murder in, in, in Europe, the Jewish communities in the Arab world were historically much better received and they were living alongside Christians and Muslims and other groups. So, um, and then, you know, many of them moved to Israel because of the international 
Zionist propaganda. So that makes me really uh, so that makes me remember this Deborah Messing Instagram post that we wanted to sort of like debunk or look at. But um, before we do that, let me just clarify what you're saying. Like, so is Palestinian, is it an ethnicity? Palestine, Palestinian is a national identity. So okay? it's and like it a multi-ethnic place, would you say? multi-religious. It's a Palesti- pa- Palestinian is a pure national identity. For me, so, for, for me, it's even a cultural symbol representing years of civilization and natural evolvement of you know humans in in that in that from land. that region. So yeah, exactly, exactly. So, but it's it's not by any way, shape, or form affiliated with any religion. There is a sizable Christian uh, Palestinian community. You know, it's the most ancient Christian group in the world. Are they less Christian than the Christians in America or the Christians in Europe? They also want their rights. They also want justice, right? They're the most ancient because Jesus Christ was from there, was from that land. You know, he was so, and, uh, so and there are people, Palestinian Jews too. There are Palestinian Jews too. So those Palestinian Jews and Palestinian Christians that live in Israel, they're still under this apartheid system. No, no, Israeli citizens, not the ones, not the ones who have citizenship. The ones who have citizenship in Israel are Israeli citizens. So they're, they're no longer considered Palestinian. They can, can they? They identify as Palestinian. If you talk to them, you go, you, you know, you meet with them. They're, they're Palestinian citizens of Israel. But the, but the apartheid state here is in reference to the, the West Bank, and the Gaza. And Gaza. So, and yeah, but I, that's what I was curious have, too. You have close to 4 million people in the West Bank and 2 million. So that's those are significant populate concentrations of people uh, living there for years. Yeah. But no, so not, we're not talking about apartheid here does not refer to the citizens of Israel. Okay. So that, so that's probably why some people might, you know, claim that it's not apartheid because they're only looking at the citizens of Israel. They're just completely ignoring all the Palestinians in West Bank and Gaza, which yeah, actually makes the, no sense. Yeah, but. but even when we talk about this minority group of Palestinian citizens of Israel, they are they're still, still ostracized. Is, absolutely, yes. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. And do you have um, any sort of follow-up questions on that? Is no, it Let's go to let's go to the Deborah Messing. Uh, okay, yeah. So this kind of interested me on several levels because it's infuriating. One, the other thing too is that you know I was talking to um, actually Yasmin, your sister. <laughs> the cat's out of the bag now, and um, she was saying that she was trying to post some Palestinian things on Instagram, and it kept being taken down. Um, because she was accused of misinformation posts, right? And yet this post that I'm going to, I'm going to share my screen um, when I figured this out. It is so clearly in my eyes, misinformation, but it's got so many likes and they've never taken this down. So um, it's helping and controlling the narrative. Yes, I think it's, it's really interesting actually because it seems so false. Um, so let's see if this is, if you can see this. Oh yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's... This. So yeah, 
So it just, it's like 10 pages. Deborah Messing puts it up. It has 21,000 likes. You know, she has a lot of followers. She has 1.4 million followers. So that's just to get an indication of the people that are listening to her. Um, And it just says like at the top here, I read online that Israelis are ethnically cleansing Palestinians. Um, And the response being, stop taking everything you read online for face value. Palestinians face many challenges and inequalities, but are not being ethnically cleansed. However, Jews have been ethnically cleansed from the rest of the Middle East. So that's something... That's I something really don't know you know what this person is talking about. Go on. <laughs> and also, this is something that you already, um, this is something that you already uh, sort of covered is that um, historically, the Arab Empire, actually, she talks about this here too. Um, she actually talks about this in, is, um, in the second page. Isn't the Israeli Palestinian conflict just a Middle Eastern argument over land between Muslims and Jews? Yes, but not the first. Jewish people, I don't know what that means, actually, but not the first, not the first conflict or argument, I think. Um, Jewish people have lived in Jerusalem for thousands of years, and they've lived in the Middle East for ages, being oppressed, raped, and murdered by the Arab empire, like Palestinian Christians. So, but you actually talked about how um, prior to Israel being formed, that they actually had pretty good relations in the Middle East. Absolutely. Jews were a minority religious group, much like, you know, much as the case with the Jews in Europe, the Jews have always been a minority numbers wise. Okay, everywhere they were. I mean, they're the most ancient monotheistic religious group. That is an undeniably true fact, you know, so they were they were in in numbers, in big numbers in Morocco, they were in Tunisia, they were all over in Egypt, they were in Damascus, they were in Iraq, even in the Arabian Peninsula, in Yemen. The real clashes between Jewish Arabs and the hosting Arab um, authorities started in 1948 as a result of the atrocities that were committed in Palestine and you know against the Palestinian people. So international Zionism with its very a strongly backed propaganda actually targeted those groups and scared them off um, and, and told them stories like, oh, the Arab uh, authorities are going after you. Why don't you escape? Come on, there is a, st- a newly formed state for you. You will get citizenship. You will get, you know, your rights. You will get, you know, financial benefits and what and so on and so forth. So, you know, obviously most of them went. There's this a newly created state with so much money, so much Western backing, you know, promising everybody a better life. And people are average humans, you know, they want, they, you know, people are going to go for better opportunities, regardless of what ethnicity, religion you're from, you know what I mean? And so that's what happened. But no, it just started in 1948. So for her to claim that this, I don't know who wrote this. Anyway, it's stupid. I'm not, I don't like that. It's, it's like, it's, it's, um, it's like uh, pollution, you know what I mean? It's like brain pollution, you know? It is. Uh, yeah. yeah, so uh, for her to claim that the Jews were ethnically cleansed, I mean, there are still Jewish um, families in Morocco still residing there, living there are still Jews in Bahrain, you know? Most Jewish left to Israel simply, you know, there's better opportunity and there's propaganda, you know, people are gonna go after you and maybe they felt unsafe. 
because, and, and rightly so, maybe some just felt unsafe because of, you know, the conflict and, you know, and um, the mess that, you know, occurred in Palestine, but they went to a, a rich state that promised them opportunity, finances, medical care, and all those perks. And uh, yeah, so I, I don't, I don't think that's ethnic cleansing. And I was when, speaking to a Syrian friend the other day, and he said that the the the, uh, the houses of the Jewish families are still there. You know, no one can. It's they're in Syria. The basically the Jewish families that fled and, and moved to uh, Israel after 1948, their houses are still apparently, according to what he said. I'm not sure if that's true, but. Uh, the houses are their houses are still there, and uh, but that's 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 the th that's the thing they like to deviate our attention. It's like how is that even relevant? How is that even relevant to the conflict on the ground today? There is a state of Israel. There is a state for you know the Jewish people, regardless of where they are. Is there a state for the Palestinian people? Yeah, so that brings me to the, that concept of the two-state solution. That's something that's brought up again and again. I mean, like, you know, the idea of, I mean, is that even a possible solution Solution right now? And also, what, okay, what is it? What, define it for us. Well, basically, uh, the two-state solution, you know, aims to create an independent Palestinian state on the remaining 22% of the land that was considered historical Palestine. So when we're discussing the two-state solution, it's very important to note that the Palestinians have made quite a painful compromise in the early 90s in the sense that, you know, they recognize the right of the state of Israel to exist on 78% of the land that was theirs before. So, and that was a huge compromise simply because they wanted to advance peace talks and, you know, negotiate uh, with the Israelis Unfortunately, I don't think Israel was ever serious about it. As I said, Israel is the only government there, is the only internationally recognized, you know, powerful government there. So if it really cared about a two-state solution, I mean, why didn't it push it forward? Why didn't it, why did it not push it forward? I mean, I mean, I guess their claim is that Yasser Arafat, uh, am I saying his name right? He yeah. was the one who didn't want it. But I also read that it, it didn't include water rights. <laughs> so, I mean, so there's, a, and I mean, that's just one detail, you know, to that situation. So it might, I guess the idea being that it wasn't, it, like you're saying, it wasn't a good faith um, negotiation or a good faith uh, offer to do a real two-state solution. Um, well, and I think it was, it wasn't born in Gaza um, where they, they listed all of the rules and all of the laws basically or for the, the rights of Palestinians and they continually disregard them, but nobody's holding them accountable. I think that was in, or was it another one? Freedom. Yeah. I don't know. Like, it could yeah, have been another. All, I told you it's merged. It's merged. Sorry. Yeah. It's all the Geneva convention rules, the, national law all international law it's just completely being ignored over yeah. and over yes That's so exactly. why why if there's even footage in these documentaries which i don't i don't think there's 
any question about it being altered, altered footage. No, there's um, too much footage, I think. There's just so too much footage. There's, so there's all this evidence. Why is nobody holding them accountable? Well, the answer is that Israel knows that, it, you know, it can continue its brutal military occupation and it can continue the process of oppressing Palestinians with more immunity, um, impunity. You know, it acts with impunity. It's never really held accountable. So from their perspective, from the Israeli perspective, it's, and I, you know, it's stalling, it's buying time so that there's more settlement activities in, um, in uh, different parts of the occupied West Bank, uh, you know, just to basically make life miserable for Palestinians so that they somehow could, you know, voluntarily leave because of misery. I mean, but they can't leave like in they Gaza, can't they can't leave. They're literally just killing them. Yeah. So that's actually brings, I guess, us to the idea of the ethnic cleansing, because that is something I think apartheid now, I think that's accepted. That's kind of accepted that that's the case apartheid, but genocide and ethnic cleansing, those are still in contention. Like, I mean, just last month, I think it was last month, Mark Ruffalo had come out with a statement calling um, the situation genocide. And then Bernie Sanders actually came out and said, do not use this sort of incendiary language, even though he is more, more for the rights of Palestinians than most other politicians. But he came out and said, you know, it's not helpful to use this sort of incendiary um, language, genocide. And then Mark Ruffalo um, came out and retracted his, his statement, apologizing for using the word genocide. And um, so it just kind of made me wonder about um, genocide, the definition of it really, like it's just ethnic cleansing, targeting of a specific ethnic group, right? And, um, and how look, watching this Gaza Fights for Freedom, where they control everything, the borders, the water. Like she's saying, they were saying that um, by 2020, the water, the lack of clean water is gonna make that area inhabitable and yet they cannot leave. And then also the other thing being, uh, they cannot rebuild the rubble. Like every time Israeli bombs, um, bombs their, their buildings, they bomb the water desalination plants that cleans the water and they cannot rebuild it because of the sanctions. So none of the materials that they need to rebuild these really important buildings, they, they can't have any access to it. So how, I guess like the thing that's so um, sad and, and fucked up about the situation, I was thinking of another word apart from fucked up and I couldn't think of anything, but like what's so fucked up about this situation is that are you actually going to say it's not genocide because it's just so slow? You know, that's what it feels like. You take away, you control the um, calorie thing so that it's like per person. Um, like you bombing farms, you're bombing these like important buildings that are there to make the, the country or the area sustain itself. Um, and then how are they supposed to survive, you know, long-term in, in, with those conditions? It's just, so to me, it actually does seem like genocide because it, but it's just a very slow one, you know? 
Um, I yeah, suddenly yeah, can't. I mean, okay. But it's also it's also divisive tactics because you never know what's going to happen in the future. I mean, no power knows, right? I mean, sometimes you you know you plan with all the tools that you have, the political tools, the wealth, the the power that you have as a government. You plan things accurately. You think you're calculating things um, very conveniently, but then you end up being surprised because the uh, reaction might not be, or the outcome might not be the way you uh, plan things to turn out uh, into. So um, genocide is, well, yeah, genocide, ethnic cleansing, ethnic cleansing. Uh, I don't think, I don't think it, I don't think the Israelis are going to be happy if the Palestinians just left in groves and occupied different, you know, um, places in the Western world and whatnot, you know, I don't think the Israelis are going to be happy to have the Palestinian refugee crisis, which by the way, has been ongoing since 1948, to be fully endorsed and internationally acknowledged. Because once you acknowledge a group of people as refugees, you're, you're, you're immediately going to, to question their, their story, right? And the Israelis don't want to have the name of their state associated with the misery and the destruction of these people, their culture, their lives, and their livelihoods. And, you know, and there's been, and, and you know, that's, that brings us to the question, have y'all heard of a single attempt, a single genuine initiative attempt on the part of any big Western government to sort of acknowledge and absorb Palestinian refugees as a political campaign plan? Have you? No. But you've no. heard of the Syrian, you've heard of the Syrian initiative, like, uh, I mean, I would say that's even iffy, like in terms of the US, they, they, they allow they so few, yeah, so few, well, yeah. Uh, and then is ridiculous. in terms of the UK as well, we cut it down to such a small number. I would say the only country in Europe that has allowed refugees in bigger numbers would have been Germany and Turkey, which is like only what three percent in Europe, <laughs> so maybe not doesn't really count. But yeah, Turkey's taken but in. You're a never going to see amount. Palestinian refugee as a part of any of those bigger, you know, political campaigns. It's never been the Palestinians who ended up residing in different parts of the Western world who excelled in their fields, and then you saw them as you know Congress people. I mean, you have Rashida Tlaib is a good oh, example, yes. right, in the U.S. Those are all exceptions. Those are people who, you know, manage to go with their own skills and, you know, their means. They help themselves. No government helped them migrate. Right. They well, were which, never. I mean, I yeah. guess this brings me to your personal lived story <laughs> or your parents' <laughs> personal story. Uh, Changing track a little <laughs> here. Um, so how, because you do still identify as Palestinian, you've, but you've never been there i'm assuming yeah well, for me it's for me it's uh for me it's a, a, as i said it's a cultural uh identity it's um it's a cultural identity that could explain the perseverance and the resilience of the people it's it's a statement you know what i mean so i think i mean obviously if you have historical ties and roots to the land then more so than some other random person but I mean, a Palestinian can be everyone. You too can be Palestinian. I feel Every bit that, as much that as would I be am. cultural oh, appropriation if I said I was Palestinian. I so many feel that would not be correct. There's, there, there are so many non-Palestinians who uh, fully endorse the cause as a human I mean, cause. I definitely do. As an do. ethical, as as an ethical, ethical human I think, cause. Yes, as an ethical 
uh, conundrum as a just a logical um, thing, you know, I would say, of course, it just does not make sense to allow without remark, uh, without exploration, the occupation of, a, you know, of a state in this particular way, like in this horrific way, which I'm saying is like ethnic cleansing in slow motion, I think. Um, but uh, I know that- it's not as slow. As, yeah, it's not, it's not as slow, but in terms of, I guess, the resistance, um, and I think we've been we've been watching some. By the way, I'm not letting you get off the hook. I do want to get into your family history a little bit later, but we've been watching <laughs> these interviews with different Palestinian um, refugees. Um, I think just recently, some in Syria, and um, one of them it was an Aaron Mate interview, and she talked about the armed resistance. She was saying like the only way forward is the armed resistance of Palestinians. That's the only way. And I think the thing is like whether or not, I mean, I don't really, I'm not really, I am anti-war, you know, I am. However, I kind of look at the options um, in this particular scenario. And what are the options? We have the armed resistance, which I think this past month um, a lot of reporting that I've heard and listened to is that they're pretty amazing for how little resources that they have, that what they've managed to accomplish, just like the guerrilla warfare or whatever tactics that they've used with their limited amount of resources. You're talking about the militants in Gaza? Yeah, the militants in Gaza, the resistance, the militant resistance. So that's one area where, where you can actually kind of see that there may be growing in number because of their cause. Um, of course, that's like everyone's like understanding that's not the best case scenario, you know, but there is that faction. And then there's another one, which BDS, which I would say is more of the, an international movement idea, um, boycott, divest and sanction. And um, that would be the one that I would be like, well, isn't that the no-brainer one? <laughs> because it's not, it's not pro-violence. It's just, it's using peaceful means. Um, and the sanctions towards Israel, it, it's sort of specifically targeting weapons. Like, so I find it really hard to even, I don't understand why people are against BDS. Like to the people against BDS to the point that in America, um, there's been several attempts to, and the last one, even Bernie Sanders, um, I think signed up on it, signed off on it, um, which was to make it illegal, to make it um, that you're not allowed to stand for BDS. Um, and Abby Martin, the, the filmmaker for this documentary, she actually sued the state of Georgia because they made her, she, she was gonna go there as a guest speaker and as a guest speaker get paid, right? Um, in one of the universities, I think. And they made her sign um, a document that said that she would pledge, basically pledge allegiance to Israel and, and not be part of like BDS or anything like that. And so she sued the state of Georgia and she won, which was a good victory. But the fact that that even exists, that to work in Georgia, you need to sign something like that, just shows you where the US is. I mean, Israel is 
as a state is is considered a very strategic state for the United States, and that's you know complicated politics. But um, I, I think where most I would say ignorant people you know fall victims is that you know they think that you know being anti-Israeli or anti the state of Israel does not make you anti-Semitic. That's you know uh, you know what I mean like. Arab people are Semites, Arab people are Semites, the Lebanese, the Palestinians are Semites too. So, and, 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 and by the way, anti-Semitism stemmed from, again, uh, historical racist Christian Europe. That's where anti-Semitism, that, that was the birthplace of anti-Semitism. And then it became a worldwide phenomenon in, in the United States. And that's, um, you're, you're against the government. I mean, a, a government cannot continue to act with full impunity and, you know, commit crimes against humanity and, you know, continue to confiscate land, demolish houses and, you know, uh, make people refugees and uproot families from their ancestral homelands, you know, and, and, and shell entire neighborhoods and entire buildings and create so much destruction and kill innocent children and, you know, peaceful protesters in the Gaza Strip and elsewhere without accountability that's just in, that's just crazy that's just insane you know insane. and it's we can't continue to, you know you know what troubles me more now it's like oh i i would i would hope that for the both parties to find peace and a resolution that would benefit the two parties and they what is that we, we we've said this all along and how is that how is that rhetoric going to solve a problem you know there's clearly an occupier a powerful military occupier and an occupied there's clearly an oppressor and an oppressed those are not equal sorry so those are not equal so uh, um, yeah yeah so which brings me to the idea of um, Hamas being a terrorist organization uh what what do you think of that <laughs> that's what it's being accused of well you know Countries are free to label resistant forces you know, in, in whatever form they find convenient. However, you know, I I like to think of things more on a practical note, on a practical level. You have you have a resistance force in the Gaza Strip, okay? And if you're bothered, if you're you know one of the most you know advanced armies in the world, and you're bothered by a bunch of you know resistance people in Gaza because you know they happen to be the only ones defending families and, and children, you're bothered by them. Why don't you engage them in the discourse? Forget about what they say. Forget about their charter. Forget about, you know, I mean, that's irrelevant. I feel all these, all these different groups should be included in the discourse, in the political discourse. And Israel has power dynamics playing in its favor. So Israel, I mean, I I, I tend to hold more powerful parties more responsible than the vulnerable ones, especially when the vulnerable ones are a bunch of people without a recognized government, then what do you expect from them? No, I think it's definitely Israel's responsibility to acknowledge that, you know, you know, Hamas is, is a resistance political organization in the Gaza Strip. It is religious, yes, and we could disagree with, we could disagree in principle uh, with, uh, you know, any form of uh, religious um, organizations, I, I guess, 
you two have share my mindset. I mean, I'm very much anti, I'm very much anti-politicized religions, you know, but when you think of it this way, when people have been extremely vulnerable for more than 50 years and, you know, they don't even have basic human rights, they're powerless, they're oppressed on a daily basis. Our nature as humans, we're vulnerable beings, but the more that we're reminded of vulnerability, that's when people seek a divine connection, you know, a spiritual, a religious connection. It may, it brings them the sense of unity, the sense of, it brings them meaning to life. So don't, you can't just alienate and blame when for so long these guys hadn't even managed to gain their basic human rights. I mean, who knows, had the three of us been brought up in Gaza and like, had we, you know, lived the horrible uh, living conditions, who knows what we would have been like? Who knows what our belief systems would have been like? Because, you know, and Gaza, by the way, was never like that in historical Palestine. Gaza was an extremely prosperous, you know, city full of cultural commerce and, you know, plays, music, you name it. Gaza was an important Palestinian port, was an important, significant historical Palestinian city. So, you know, you're looking at Gaza now and you say, oh, look, there are a bunch of radicalized people who want the destruction of the state of Israel. Well, I mean, you have been occupying them for uh, so long and they're deprived of their basic human rights. What do you expect them to do? Just to say, okay, fine, come, come, on, come on in, kill us and we're just gonna shut up? I mean, that's why like, I don't think it's, look, the United States even has an example with um, regarding uh, re regarding you know foreign uh, groups. The Vietnamese were once called the terrorists because, but then with time, the United States negotiated with them. All these groups, you have a confrontation with a group. You claim that you, you know you claim you have a confrontation with group State of Israel versus Hamas. Well, engage in political discourse and the occupation lift the Gaza siege, okay? Let people live, let them control their lives. And then if they still continue, once they have their full rights, whether it be a two-state solution or full equal rights is one state, whatever it is. And if they still continue to fire rockets, then hold them accountable, but not now. So just to back you're, up you're again. Giving them, you're giving them every bit of a reason as an occupier, oppressive, stronger, brutal military force, you're giving them every bit of a reason to retaliate with firing rocket. What else are they going to do? What else are they going to do? Yeah. And oh, because now you associate it. Oh, but they're smart. They work on the marketing of the whole, you know, the entire conflict. Oh, but they're associated with Islamic Jihad and everybody hates Islamic Jihad. Well, let's, let's not forget Islamic Jihad was supported by the United States when the Islamists were met to, to fight the Soviets in Afghanistan. Who do you think gave them all the weaponry, the training, the, all the radicalization? I mean, Hillary Clinton once uh, confessed in one of her videos. And then when things don't go the way you plan it, and then you, well, I mean, that's exactly, that's exactly the point. Hamas was only created 39 years after the creation of Israel. Hamas is a relatively new political, religious, political organization. The thing is, Israel was very much concerned uh, about the escalating political events of the first intifada of 1987. 
And the Palestinians were then governed by the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, which was completely secular, by the way. And the very first founders were very intellectually motivated and smart young individuals who were very left wing and wanted to, you know, uh, fight fight for their homeland and for their people and fight for justice. And it was a completely, you know, marketed as a human left wing secular cause. Obviously, Israel did not like that momentum, did not like that rhetoric. And so the very, the very founding of Hamas as a strict religious political organization, in those early years, you know, that was in favor of Israeli Zionist uh, political agendas because they wanted, a, they wanted a, a force that would counter the influence of the flourishing uh, PLO. And, you know, that did create clashes between the Palestinians. Let's not forget that. The, the PLO and Hamas fought for some years. But then things don't go as you plan. And now Hamas is, you know, uh, a political organization of so many fighters. They're developing their own weapons, their, their own rockets, and they need to be part of the discourse. You can't alienate them as terrorists. I mean, fine, call them terrorists. Call them whatever. Include them in the discourse. They're a political, they're a political resistance force. There is no state of Palestine. I don't care if they're, I don't care if they, you know, happen to be Muslim, Christian, Jewish, whatever, you know, they, they don't represent uh, all Palestinians, you know, not all Palestinians share their ideology. But they were but, democratically elected, right? They were. But that was a long time ago. When was that? 2007. Okay. So you were saying there's... But then again, I mean, yes, yeah, we're not Gazans. Like, I'm not, you're, you know what I mean? Like, you're, you know what I mean? Like, they, they were, but they're still, they're still a political, uh, religious um, organization. It needs to be part of the discourse. There are, there are still religious organizations in the United States and many parts of, you know, this world. It's, you have different parties and different political parties. And, you know, some political parties are more, um, you know, strongly religious than others. And so this happens to be a, a, an Islamic political organization. Now, I don't, in principle, I don't believe, you know, uh, religion and, 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 and government should be mixed. I personally don't believe that. But I mean, I can't just, as an outsider, I can't Yeah, I say, mean, as an atheist, I also don't agree with that. But then, but your point being like, I mean, so Israel, like the PLO, right? Um, and also... Um, historically, America has sort of dismantled a lot of um, democratically elected governments that were more left-leaning, that were more socialist, that were secular, etc. So this is a continuation of that. It's very much in that playbook, you know. So in terms of that, but I think my, my point being with Hamas being democratically elected, though, is... Um, Therefore, this idea of it just being like a ragtag terrorist group, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like what we're, we're sort of sold in the West. Like, it's just this crazy terrorist group using all Palestinians and children as human shields, you know? Um, that's kind of the, the messaging. Even in the last, the last um, what would you call it? The last uh, bombings by the, by the Israelis, um, in in the U.S. and the U.K., it was like, well, why did Hamas uh, throw some rockets over? You know, like if Hamas didn't want people to die, they wouldn't have done that. You know, that's kind of 
the idea behind the messaging that we're getting. And all this political rhetoric that gives Israel the green light to act with impunity under the pretext of self-defense, they have the right to defend themselves. Well, why can't the Palestinians have the right to defend themselves too? And by the way, speaking of the, the, the terrorist label, the PLO was considered terroristic in the past and they were not affiliated with Islamic Jihad. The radicalization of Muslims really started in the 80s and 90s. And the US had a major role because they were fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan. And so it was politically strategic and smart to sort of you know, support a, a group that could you know, work and serve bigger US interests in the, the US won that conflict you know, against um, the Soviets in Afghanistan. But then you have a group of people that you helped empower, that you uh, supported with weaponry, with training, with radicalization, and those people are going to continue. And so you have other shoots. You have you know other like radical shoots. So I still think like if if justice if justice prevailed and and we had less divisions and we had less racism and we gave people their rights as decent human being, beings, we would see less of all of this mess. Yeah, I mean- so I, I really don't think it's in, I don't think Israel is um, necessarily doing things the smart way because it doesn't, it doesn't serve the average Israeli citizen's interest to continue to blame the other as terrorists and alienate them and not engage them in political discourse when your mere security as an Israeli citizen is also being, uh, you know, jeopardized and threatened. You know, they, you know, during this last confrontation, Israeli citizens were in shelters. I mean, that's not, that's, I mean, can you imagine if life here in the Western world was that about shelters and military and that's not, I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, yeah, I mean, the ironic thing is that the, the Gazans had no shelters <laughs> like so it's even that's oh, even no. worse but like as you know of course you know this but but I just think it's funny because even if you look at what the Israelis were going through during that confrontation let's call it of course I'm not I'm not yeah. comparing it I'm it's not comparing, comparing it. It. but no but what I'm saying because they keep on you know playing that uh, rhetoric of all oh, our safety they want to kill us and we're scared and whatnot if you're really genuinely scared, you would end the occupation. Yeah, you wouldn't throw people you're, out of their houses. That's what I don't think. I don't think the. I don't think their argument is strong enough. If you're really genuinely concerned about uh, prosperity, peace, and security, you would advance peace talks in a constructive political setting with the Palestinians, because you know those are the two parties: the state of Israel and the Palestinians. And you would work out a solution. And yeah. there's not going to be a viable solution with, without justice for the Palestinians. I mean, why would there be? They're That's not, why, why it looks like an ethnic cleansing, because there is no other solution being presented. And the way that things are going now, um, yeah. you know, the intention seems to be ethnic cleansing, because they're not and taking the, into account the resistance. Absolutely. And, and, and the sad part is that just despite all that positive momentum that we've experienced in the Western world that has become more in favor of uh, the Palestinians and greater awareness for, you know, their um, miseries and, and you know, the atrocities that have been committed. 
now the, the political rhetoric in the state of Israel is moving more strongly on the right wing side and becoming more strongly racist and divisive to where like, a, I think a few weeks ago, you had people protesting, uh, right wing, you know, uh, conservative Zionists protesting and chanting things like death to Arabs and the best Arab is a dead Arab. And things like, uh, I heard one, one of their guys was saying the second Nakba is on the way as though they're, they're proud. The second Nakba is on the way. Obviously, I mean, I'm not going to hold these people accountable. They're, they're, they're indoctrinated citizens. They're not the government. They don't represent, you know what I mean? But it's, it's the culture. It's that yeah. political uh, culture that is more increasingly right-wing in Israel. Yeah. There's definitely something going on in Israel, like you said. Like, they are being indoctrinated. It's unfortunate. It's unfortunate because, you know, uh, I, I'm, I mean, I guess if you were to carry out a survey in, you know, in much of Europe and even in the United States, most people are not going to be against the ending of the occupation. I mean, that's my, my feeling. Well, well, Anne was just saying, was telling me last year, I guess now, that she hadn't even heard the term occupation to do with- Yeah, I didn't- No, no it's fine, and it's fine. It was, yeah. And it's fine, but I mean, if you, if you, if you brought it up to, and, and, and sort of gave a brief, um introduction to the history the conflict whatever to average americans europeans or you name that most people are not going to be against the uh, the ending of the occupation well i mean if they don't even know about it like because you yeah. know i mean this is called the ignoramus's guide and we are claiming ourselves ignorant but i would say we're not really like below average, you know, ignorance. <laughs> I, I don't so, you know, so the fact that like, like Anne, you were saying you never heard, what, what had you heard if you hadn't heard the term occupation? Uh, I really didn't know anything that was going on and I was researching it because um, I wanted to learn more about like the Shiites and, uh, and just different things that I wanted to know on my own. And I started yeah. putting on documentaries and it was like occupation. And I was like, I accept for something that somebody does for work as an occupation. I didn't know what it was. And I, it, so I had to, I had to figure that out before I could even go forward with the documentaries because it was, it was, yeah, super ignorant, but I feel like that's honestly the norm. I'm not uneducated. Yeah. You went to college. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you can read. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's not you're not like the biggest ignoramus. Like, I wouldn't have met you and thought you were. <laughs> I mean, like about, about some things. Absolutely. But, but I don't, that's not, it's not a common thing. And here it's like, in the United States, we just, we don't always look at world problems. And it's just what's around us. What we see is, that's it, which is unfortunate. Things. Yeah, yeah the fact that you have like three point what three point seven billion dollars right foreign aid to Israel per year is that right? That's about three point six or three point seven billion dollars. So the most foreign aid from the U.S. is going to Israel. Um, that's just not that's not well known. That's not well known in the U.S. and that's your taxpayer dollars. But it's becoming more well known now, and especially after the recent events 
I mean, social media played a huge role in bringing out the Palestinian voice. We've seen protests all over, you know, the Western world and Europe, and those were very strong protests in, in the United States, in Michigan, other parts, Chicago, New York. So the Palestinian rhetoric is finally gaining political, I mean, it's, it's some political momentum. It's still not ideal yet, but, you know, it's, there's, there's change. There's change from within the U.S. too. And um, I was reading an article the other day about the shift in, uh, you know, the views of the evangelical Christian groups who were historically extremely in favor of Israel, again, for certain biblical reasons. And now that, that, that belief is shifting and they are no longer, you know, adopting or endorsing the Israeli side as before. So things are changing. And um, we should always, I mean, we should always continue to be optimistic. I mean, the thing is, if we're not, we're just going to lose hope. So I think there's, there's all kinds of um, beautiful works that are being uh, done on the part of many interesting Palestinians in, in America and other parts of the Western yeah. world and uh, elsewhere. So it's, you know, I think Palestine now, if you still like after, uh, after the, the most recent events, if you still are oblivious about, you know, Palestine, then you're probably <laughs> very ignorant because I mean, trust me, I've met so many people, you know, in traveling the world and living in different places. Many people did not know what Palestine was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and some people, some people wanted to even, they knew, but they were, you know, they were politically motivated and, uh, they pretended like they didn't know. I, I remember like I had a conversation once with a South Korean who pretended he didn't know uh, what Palestine was. And then he said something about Israel or something, said something. I was like, well, yeah, well, a minute ago, you pretended you didn't know about it. So look, <laughs> it looks like you do. Oh, I called him out on it. Oh, it pissed me off. I called him out. I was like, but I thought you didn't know about it. It's like, so why are you? It's like, you know what I mean? But now it's, okay. it's going to become... Yeah. 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 I mean, I think, I think you're right because like, okay, so I brought up the Mark Ruffalo thing because it, to just show that there is still some pressure in the US to sort of like, to really posh your words with this. And however, I remember telling Anne about this, like when we started this podcast, I was like, well, we should probably cover something like, you know, the ignorance around Palestine. Palestine that was like last year and um and then I was like of course we're gonna get immediately canceled <laughs> like just the idea of even mentioning it I don't, I don't um think I I think now I think now we won't I mean I feel a difference and I don't know if it's just because I like having done this podcast it's just like so interesting to talk to different people that maybe I feel like I don't know, like maybe more optimistic or something or more naive. I don't know. <laughs> but I feel well, like it's not. Yeah, go ahead. There's there's a shift, right? If we're able to finally see things on social media, uh, you know, and that's not all being censored. That's the only way to in this day and age, I feel like now where we've all gone to social media. That's the only way to really do awareness um, in the current state. And so if it's not being censored. I mean, it is a, a little bit like we're saying, well, Yasmin, yeah, some stuff up that would take It's still down. being censored, but not but censored. Not, not completely. 100%. Yeah, not completely. But people are still losing their jobs. I mean, Cornell West, you know, 
um, just very famous in black into black troll in, in the US. Um, he wasn't given tenure in, in Harvard and he thinks it's because he supports Israel, um, Palestine, <laughs> not Israel, <laughs> because he supports Palestine and he wasn't given tenure. So he was effectively fired. Um, so it's still in the establishment but I think it's slowly changing in terms of, like you're saying, the social media. People are a little bit more aware now. Um, and if we feel less scared or if I feel less scared talking about it, then I can't be the only one. I mean, it's not like we have a massive The sad audience. part is that why, why the, the sad part of the story is that why should people even be concerned about speaking in favor of justice and equality well you know because I mean? they can get fired i mean that is the point is yeah, like oh, you can, of course no i'm, yeah. I'm aware of that I'm yeah aware of that, so it's but not, that is sad but it's that is so extreme. sad and and actually i mean i mean i'm not really personally that scared but i was just you know looking at for example jeremy corbyn here in the uk he was smeared um as an anti-semite and really the, okay, so it was politically motivated, those smears. But if you look at what they were saying, it was all about Palestinian rights. Like it had nothing to do with anti-Semitism in terms of for him, like maybe one or two people in the Labour Party were actually anti-Semitic, but, but he was tarred with the brush of anti-Semitism based on, um, I think, Palestinian rights. And his career is pretty much destroyed completely um yeah completely destroyed so it's a very effective weapon definitely oh, and that's why i think i mean it's that's uh i mean it's, it's obvious that it's also like a part of this ethnic cleansing process when you continue to fight the mere presence the culture the history the people you know their identities their uh their accomplishments their you know when you are against acknowledging them as palestinian it just it is just one small part of a bigger package yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. yeah. You're erasing them. Like you're saying, you're erasing the Palestinians in Israel through... Oh, absolutely. But also like diminishing and continue to, to continue to belittle the significance of, you know, this people who existed historically in this land and who had a very thriving culture and who have, by the way, have produced some of the most notable intellectuals and, you know, scientists and whatnot. And they excelled everywhere they went. In the Arab world, they were, you know, a very uh, unique community in different places, and uh, in, the, in in the U.S. too. I mean, uh, uh, I mean, you know, sometimes like you get all kinds of racist comments saying like, "Why should the Palestinians? Why should the Palestinians deserve a state? What have they produced?" I said, "Oh no, they have produced so much with very minimal means. With despite all the hardship that they have to endure on a daily basis, there's been." There's still been examples of Palestinians manufacturing all kinds of smart products and, you know, promoting businesses and, and, and entrepreneurship in the occupied territories. That's not to mention, that's not to mention Palestinian contributions in the diaspora. I mean, look, if Edward Said, I'm not, I'm not sure if you've heard of him, if Edward Said was uh, living under the occupation in Gaza, who, by the way, was a Palestinian intellectual born in Jerusalem, Palestine, 1935, and moved uh, to the United States as a high school student and then got a PhD in English literature from Harvard and, you know, obviously became a very important uh, American intellectual. His, his, his books are still being taught at 
you know, uh, all across the country. If this guy was living under the occupation in the Gaza Strip, you think we he would have managed to leave behind an academic legacy that is still influencing influencing many generations of intellectually inclined individuals and, and, and you know, progressives around the world? Hell no. The thing is, but he's still Palestinian, right? 13 years of his life, he grew up in a Christian Palestinian family in Jerusalem. He was uprooted from his homeland. Then he went to Egypt and then to the United States. So he's not entirely American either. I mean, obviously, America was a big part of his identity, his place of residence, his, you know, where he got his education. I'm not saying he's not American, but he's also a Palestinian American who was born in but I am just going to push back on this idea that you have to be a contributing member of, you know, the world to have the right to live. I mean, no, to well, have the right to have a place. No, but well, of course you don't. Of course you don't. Of course, no, you don't. of course you don't. But what I'm trying to say is that despite all those contributions that are very clearly evident, are you still in a position to, to, to completely eradicate and erase and, you know, and belittle uh, those people and say they don't exist? That's That's... That is, I think that's like one of the, the, I mean, I wouldn't say the first, but it's just one of the very clear, obvious um, steps towards dehumanization, you know, sort of claiming that an ethnicity, an ethnic group is useless, you know, it's like, it doesn't contribute or something. And so you erase all contributions, all historical uh, facts, really. I mean, that's just one of the many, many weapons of racism um that happens so that makes sense yeah so okay so going back to sort of like we were talking about your family history you've never you weren't born in palestine don't forget that part <laughs> <laughs> you're like not, but like you know because no, 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 your your parents were they born in palestine or was yes, it they were they both were okay and so when did like what was it like for them to leave like how did they leave well they left I mean, what, what was the number around in 1948, 800,000 Palestinians were uprooted and, you know, uh, were forced to leave their houses or cities, villages, places where they had been residing forever. And they became refugees in a matter of a day or so. So my family, you know, my, my father's side of the family was from the city of Haifa. My mom's side of the family was from the city of Java, so they're on, on the coast. And um, my, my, my maternal grandfather had just bought a house where my mom was born. And, and then he, you know, he basically lost it. They basically lost everything behind. The bank accounts were, con- were confiscated. Palestinian money was worthless. And, you know, the homes were taken. Uh, Jewish, European Jewish settlers at the time, you know, migration focused more heavily on European uh, Jewish migrants. So Jewish settlers were put in those Palestinian homes. And um, yeah, so those Palestinians left Palestine, most of whom went to neighboring countries, Lebanon, Jordan, Kuwait, you know, other countries in the region. And then later, you know, many went, I guess even at the time too, many went to, you know, I'm I'm not sure if many, I I don't know the statistics or the numbers, but, you know, they went everywhere in the world, including the Western world, the US, different parts. So, yeah, and I think this is what Anne was referring to, was that your parents or your your dad went to Kuwait? Both, both, both your parents. Both my, both my parents were born in Palestine. And then they moved to Kuwait? 
Was that? Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, my grand my grandparents moved to Kuwait in the early fifties. Oh. Oh yeah, because of course my, your, my parents, your my parents, parents were children. Were children. <laughs> yeah, they're not that old. And um, <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> and uh, and and think I think that was what was Anne was um, referring to when they weren't given citizenship. So they went to Kuwait and they weren't given. Well, um, okay. So if we're now 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 we're talking about a completely different topic. So the Arab countries and how the Arab countries um, received the Palestinian presence. Now there's something that's called the Arab League, which is, you know, um, a, a political, I, I mean, I call it a dysfunctional political organization of all these Arab states. And the idea at the time was to uh, discourage the naturalization of Palestinians in the, um, in the Arabic majority countries, and which is something that I'm, as a political economist, what I'm very strongly against. So the idea was to discourage the naturalization of Palestinians under the pretext of preserving the Palestinian identity and so that they can, you know, uh, return back to Palestine. You know, it was marketed, it was marketed under such, um, you know, reasons. And, and so most Palestinians, um, the ones who fled to Jordan in 1948, for the most part, received Jordanian citizenship. Jordan was a very new country that didn't have that many um, inhabitants and you know, wanted to develop into uh, a Hashemite kingdom. So Jordan did naturalize the Palestinians that you know came as a result of the 1948 conflict. But the Arab countries, the other Arab countries did not. But there were some Palestinians were managed to uh, get citizenship in different Arab countries but it was not because they were Palestinian. It was, you know, on, on an exception basis. Yeah. Okay. So that's, I mean, that's definitely, I mean, it could be a discussion for another topic because that's like Arab politics. But yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. Um, I mean, there was a very strong Palestinian presence in the Arab countries, which if, you were to take me back in time, I would have preferred that they, you know, that they'd gone other elsewhere, basically, and, and not not because, I mean, you know, you're talking about a, a group of countries that are still, you know, undergoing political and economic turmoil. You know, they're they're not, you know, they, they I mean, they're not necessarily strongly autonomous, and you know establishing that, you know, independent, um, from an independent policy perspective. So for a vulnerable group like the Palestinians, I would have preferred that they, you know, went somewhere with more, you know, that they, where they could have been more, more empowered as opposed to, you know, where they were in different parts of the Arab, the Arab world. Yeah, so much misinformation. And people exactly. who, I, I do, I do think people are paid to put that misinformation out there and to do what that guy did, continually engage with people until. I mean, like Deborah Messing, it's like, I'm sure she wasn't paid for that, but like, how is she so ignorant? I am so shocked actually by her 
because it's been up there for like, I think months. So, you know, like a normal person would have figured out that's super embarrassing and taken it down. Like if you posted it by mistake, because she was given it by someone else, you know? So it's so if that's what you were raised believing and you don't you know, know but, any better. Yeah, I guess like, but that's the part that's, you know, she's an adult. It's not like she's 12 years old. She's an yeah. adult who has access to reading material. Oh, but also and like, don't forget that they're, uh, they're desperate because they know they're losing the, the media war, right? They know that. And so they're I desperate to know. sort of, des- sorry. I, I'm not sure because um, amongst all my circles, it's obvious, right? Like I don't even, I'm struggling to even understand the other side, to be honest. Right. Like I can't even really find any legitimate pushback. Just all about power. Yeah. It's just about power. It's, you know, like we're saying it's an um, occupation. It's like very, very clear cut. Like it's not that it's not that complicated in terms of what's going on. You know, it's just very, very clear morally, morally and with principle. If you just look at the situation, so obvious. Right. So it's hard to even understand the other side. Like, to be honest, I think the only thing that I'm hearing is that, but are you saying that Israel doesn't have a right to exist? Are you saying that Jews don't have the right to have a a country, you know? And it's like, we never said, we never said that in our, uh, we've been talking for more than an hour. (laughs) Yeah. We've never (laughs) said that. We never, I didn't even think about that. I I mean, the closest thing would just, the closest thing that I may have said was just that there were people there (laughs) before you came like that. But that doesn't mean that I think you, you don't have a right to have a home. Like that's not, that's not what we're saying. Um, And yet. Exactly. And you know what, you know what, because they claim, which, you know, it's a religious claim. They claim, oh, we have a very strong two to 3,000 year connection to that land. And so we want to come back. Okay, fine. I mean, two, two to 3,000 years. Oh, God. <laughs> You're very old. <laughs> anyway, but anyway, but I'm, anyway, I'm not going to discredit that claim. I just want to take their perspective for, for temporarily, right? So if you're claiming, which is, by the way, based on your religious interpretation, this is your promised land. And the Jews had a very strong connection to it. By the way, the Jews have a very, every bit of a strong connection to Egypt, if not even stronger. Does that make it right for them to take over Egypt? Probably not. Definitely not. Sorry. What do you mean? Probably. But <laughs> if that's, <laughs> no, uh, so if that's your claim and, and, and you came back two to 3,000 years after, then why can't a Palestinian go back 73 years after? The, the real people who have the title deeds, the house keys, and the documents are the Palestinians. Their presence, uh, their historical ties to the land are more easily and conveniently traceable. You can't, I mean, two to 3,000 years. Yeah, how do you trace that? <laughs> but even, yeah, I mean, even that idea is that it's so ridiculous. Is that because people have been there after you? So you just like, and it's fine. And they're you know they came, and it's fine. We can't just go back to 1948 and sort of undo all the right. political. That we're we're not in 1948, right? Yeah. They're there. They're there. And now they've so been many, there for generations too. Exactly. So it's not it's, like there's so many Israeli uh, generations that you know been born and raised there, and no one is asking them to leave. 
but they don't have the right to kick somebody else out just because, you know, they're, they happen to be of a different religion. That's it. That's it. Simple. Fine. You came, you were living there. You don't get to kick somebody else out. You don't get to oppress them. You don't get to ethnically cleanse them. You don't get to occupy them. Did I say occupy twice? No, I think. Oh. So let's say they claim it Israel as a Jewish state, right? So then if there's an atheist Jew or somebody is like, oh, well, I like this other religion better and converts, what would happen? Look, if you can prove Jewish ancestry, you could just, all you have to do is like book a, book a plane ticket, land in Tel Aviv, and you're, you're going to get citizenship there. If you, can, if you can prove, you know, that you're Jewish, I think it's, you know, if you're born to a Jewish mother, if you can prove Jewish ancestry, doesn't, they don't really care whether you're, you're, you know, practicing or observing the religion. As long as you can, you know, prove Jewish ancestry, you are automatically guarantee your right of citizenship. Whereas someone who was born in Palestine, okay, and uprooted, ethnically cleansed, you know, had their, you know, uh, parents, grandparents, great, great grandparents, you know, born and raised there, doesn't even have the right to visit, let alone gain citizenship. And it, it kind of seems fucked up from you know, uh, you have the Holocaust and it was hard for people to even have that recognized for a mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. And then it's like the kid who gets bullied on the playground, but to an extreme oh. amount, who then is finally gets a little bit of power. And then it's Bullies like, another oh, kid. bully another. Yeah. And it's like, where is the empathy? Where is I don't know. I, I trust me, trust me. That thought, like I, you know, the more I think about it, the more I get personally depressed. It's like, where's, yeah, where is that human empathy? It's like, how could you even like represent or, you know, if your ancestors, you know, were bullied, ostracized, uh, murdered, I mean, bullied and ostracized at the very bit, at the very best, but at the very worst, even murdered in like one of the most heinous crimes so how could you even like have the capacity to commit like similar crimes against another people? And, you know, and that then is, even use it as an excuse. Like that's I, the thing I, that yeah, is it's, so it's shocking. really troubling. It's, it's really so troubling. True. It's extremely troubling. And it's why um, actually when I went to the Anne Frank house in Amsterdam, um, some of like uh, Otto Frank's writing was just so beautiful because he really did talk about humanity like that people can do this to people you know what I mean like he didn't he didn't make it about um just being Jewish he really understood this idea of human cost to humanity to to the evils of humanity and that's how it, it should be like if we look at it that way then this wouldn't be happening you know in Palestine if if we looked at it that way, that we're all part of this human race. Oh my God. <laughs> there has to be a clear, genuine effort on the part of 
uh, well-established Western governments to sort of end this decades-long brutal occupation because, you know, people have been suffering for decades now. And, you know, the atrocities, as I mentioned, don't belong anywhere in this 21st century mindset. We should condemn the occupation and work and, you know, and, and strenuously to end all, you know, the, the, the horrific violations of human rights that are occurring in Palestine. You know, uh, again, the solution is up to the two parties. They can agree on a solution, but, you know, I don't see a solution uh, being possible if justice is not guaranteed for everyone, regardless of ethnicity, religious background or whatnot. There has to be justice in order for us to really enjoy peace and security. Well, thank you so much. And I think we, we covered a lot. I really do think we did. I don't know if we made things simpler or more complicated <laughs> because I came into this thing like, it's actually very simple, but it's, it's a lot of details. complex and to go from zero to like 75, it's hard. Cause you're like, what, who? who, where, when you're that ignorant, which a lot of people are. I mean, I think the main thing about the ignorance is like, just like we're saying the fear of even speaking about it, because you're scared that if you do talk about it, you'll be accused of being anti-Semitic, you know? So if you remove that fear, then, or being accused of being- Well, but it's also exposure. Okay. Because there, you have to be exposed to it to then even have that fear, and you have to be at a specific right. level to have <laughs> that awareness. So you're you know? just, you're saying that that a lot of people are even be, behind what I'm even saying. Yeah, <laughs> like it's like I thought that was rock that bottom, level. but you're saying that there's a much lower. Level. Yes. <laughs> oh, are you yeah. kidding me? Of course. I, I mean, I don't. <laughs> of course, yeah, most definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it looks so disgusting with me. Right now. <laughs> you guys are very no, but the, no, but no, but like you guys are very aware of many. Like you're, I don't, I wouldn't even consider you remotely ignorant about. Oh no, uh, I am. I totally am. I disagree. I mean, I've, 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 I've had... We agree about a lot of other things, so this is fine. You can disagree on this one. The Ignoramus's Guide to Surviving Humanity is available as a podcast on Spotify and Amazon Music. You can also like and subscribe to our videos on YouTube. And if you want to help us grow, then you can become a patron on Patreon. And that's it, right? I think that's, that's it. it. Yeah. <laughs>